Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody this morning. A special welcome uh, to everyone today, particularly our guests. Everybody is welcome at Hillcrest, and I'm especially grateful that you're here today. And I'm grateful to be uh, back with you after several days away. Uh, it's always good to come back home. But I bring you greetings this morning from uh, our wonderful Hillcrest missionary personnel who are located in parts of uh, Western and Southern Europe where we were for about nine days or so, nine or 10 days. I'm convinced that it's frozen all over the world. We spent a lot of time <clears throat> in cold Europe. Out of uh, 10 days, we saw the sun one day out of 10. And so it was cold, it was bone tingling, it was... Um, gray. It was overcast the whole time, but boy, I tell you, I bring you greetings this morning from some great people who are on fire for Jesus. From London, uh, we spent time with Max and Julie Kent and Chris and Beth. And I heard that woo. That must be Megan, their daughter. She's in the house this morning, obviously. Or maybe it was Miss Peggy. Who knows? Uh, she's wild and crazy. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we love the Kents and the Prisbeloviches are new in London. We got to spend some time with them. Uh, and preached the gospel in London uh, Sunday the 7th, which was a wonderful experience. And then we went on to uh, the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, where we have two Hillcrest uh, couples, young couples serving, one in Amsterdam, the Barkers, and then the Sansons in Rotterdam to the south. They came up and spent some time with us, and we got to spend some wonderful time with their IMB uh, supervisory team there and strategized with them, sat in on meetings. It was really great learning about the culture and uh, encouraging them and uh, spending half the night one night uh, with some uh, Dutch college students. And if you've never done that, that will bless your life. You better know your Bible uh, because people are hungry for spiritual things. And then, of course, we went on to Macedonia where we spent a couple of days with Julia Robinson and with our IMB team there in Skopje, Macedonia. And one of the great experiences of my life last Sunday was preaching the gospel to a small little church in Macedonia that was very responsive to it. So we just had a wonderful time and appreciate the opportunity uh, to encourage those who are ours and uh, always good, however, to be back. And we're certainly glad uh, to be home today and to be back in our pulpit this morning. Take your Bible, if you would, please. Romans chapter 12 is where we'll spend a few minutes this morning. We begin a new series, a brief series today. We're calling Don't Waste Your Life. And let me tell you, after a number of days in huge metropolitan areas where it's obvious that people by the millions are coming and going and grinding themselves against a grindstone, chasing after rainbows, with little or no acknowledgement of God, where others in that swimming horde of people have little or no hope at all. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to make it through another day. Many are addicted to substances to blind them of the pain of life and of their hopeless condition. Many don't know why they're here. They don't know whether or not they matter at all. In a world like that, I think it's very important especially as we start a new year, uh, to continue to focus on some critical priorities so that we can live with a clear purpose and a clear direction. I've said many times that the greatest questions of life are, who is God, who am I, 
Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going when I die? And you know, as a believer, we have the answers to all five of those questions. And that's what gives us a concreteness with respect to the meaning of life and the existence of life and what the purpose of life is and where we're headed over the distant or not so distant horizon. You can live your life with a clear purpose and a clear direction, and that's what we want. The last thing that anybody should want is to spend years and years, even decade after decade, climbing a ladder of success as defined by the world, only to reach the top of the ladder after all of those years and all of those decades, and then finding that for all of that time, your ladder had been leaning against the wrong wall. What a terrible realization, and yet that's going to be the realization for most of the people who are alive today because they don't know why they're here. They're wrestling with the existence of God. They don't know where they're supposed to go with life. They don't know what the purpose and the meaning of life is, but we can, and it's toward that end that we'll be doing some of these studies over the next six weeks. This morning, we began with a familiar and simple passage of Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I memorized this verse in the King James Bible when I was a little boy, and I've tried very diligently not to stray too far from it because It really is that important. Let's notice it together. The Apostle Paul writes to the church, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, those of you that are familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans know that Paul takes a long time to get to this point. And what he writes up to this point in Romans 1 through 11 is the single most important theological statement in the entire Bible, I believe. It's that rich, it's that important, and the gospel is unpacked in the most significant way in the first part of Romans. But most of that is theological information so that we can know the right things in order that we might believe the right things. But Paul's wise enough to know that the gospel is not just about information. More to the point, the gospel is about transformation. The gospel is about information in the sense that there are some things that you desperately need to know about God and about life and about what only God can do for you. But that gospel is not just to know, it's to transform. It's there to change your life. So as a result, the gospel, when it's given, always demands a response. And that response to the gospel is probably best summarized anyway in Romans 12, 1 and 2, what comes after that important theological thrust of Paul? What he says next is dynamically important. I appeal to you, therefore. And by the way, you need to circle the word therefore because anytime there's a therefore in Scripture, you need to stop and determine what the therefore is therefore. And in this case, the therefore, sometimes the therefore refers to the previous sentence. Sometimes the therefore refers to what's said in the previous paragraph. 
or the previous chapter. In this case, when Paul says, therefore, I urge you, I appeal to you, He's going back to everything that he said from Romans 1 and 1, the whole first part of his letter to the Romans. Basically, it's his way of saying, okay, here's the deal. In light of everything that I've just taught you about your sinful condition, your human depravity, in light of everything that I've just taught you about God's kindness and God's love and the incredible grace of God who responds to your sinful depravity, by offering a way out through the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, in light of the love of God, in light of the grace of God, in light of the incredible kindness of God who ought to judge us but does not, in light of the justification that we've received, the right standing with God that we have, the peace with God that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life and the possession of the Holy Spirit that we all now possess Because of faith, in light of all of that, Paul says, therefore, there are some very important things you need to know that matter to God with respect to how you respond to that gospel. And it's these things that matter to God, I think, that are very important that all of us know if you're to keep from wasting your life. The first thing that Paul would remind us is the simple truth that what I do matters to God. Now, that sounds very elementary, and indeed it is, but the fact is I need to say it this morning because I was reminded in these past several days observing millions of people who do not acknowledge God that most people in the world and most people in Pensacola, Florida seem to think that they can live their life any way that they want to live. Most people believe that their life is their own to manage and they'll do exactly as they please. Thank you very much. You you do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do and you don't judge me and I won't judge you and we'll get along just fine. But Paul says here in verse one, that's a flawed way of thinking because with respect to your life, You are not your own. In fact, Paul says your life is not yours to do with as you please. You know what your responsibility is with your life? Lay it down. Paul says the human responsibility before God is to take our life and our bodies and yield them, laying them down and offering them to God for his good pleasure. Present your body. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the logical response to the gospel right there. I love that phrase, living sacrifice. That's what we call in English class an oxymoron. You know what that is, don't you? It doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence. But an oxymoron are two words put together that seemingly cancel one another out, like the phrase government efficiency. Somebody say amen. That's an oxymoron. Or icy hot. How many of you put icy hot on your back? Icy hot is an oxymoron. Things can't be icy and hot at the same time, right? Well, living sacrifice is like that, isn't it? A living sacrifice. A sacrifice was something that was dead, and yet the reality is that phrase, that phrase living sacrifice, bro, that is a Christian phrase to the core. 
Name me any other group, any other class of people that will use a phrase like living sacrifice. You won't find it anywhere in the globe. That is classic Christianity, classic biblical language to the core. And it's the essence of what we mean by discipleship. You want to know a definition of discipleship in a nutshell? It's this, living sacrifice to God. That's what a disciple is. Now, it's interesting that when it comes to being a living sacrifice, the first place Paul starts is with the body. And the reason that's true is because he lived in a culture that was dominated by Greco-Roman philosophy. And in most philosophical, a lot of different strains of Greek philosophy, but Paul was a Greek and he knew how Greek people thought. And the reality was they tended to think that there was a separateness between the body and the spirit. Many Greeks believed in kind of a concept that's become known as dualism. Now, I know many of you would say, well, wait a minute, we're Christian and I, we, we have a body and we have a spirit, that's right. But the difference between us and them is we believe that the whole person's going to live forever somewhere. The Greeks believed that many of them did anyway, that you did have a spirit and the spirit was what was eternal. And so it was what mattered, but the body wasn't. The body was not eternal to the Greek. It was withering away, it was aging, it was decaying, and it was eventually going to die. And so they didn't care what you did with the body. You could do whatever you wanted to. That's why they, you know, had all of these pagan sexual uh, uh, ritualistic traditions because it really didn't matter what you did with the body. Eat what you want, buy what you want, spend what you want, do whatever because the body's wasting away and it doesn't matter. See, a Christian, though, is different because we believe the whole person is going to be eternal. The body is eternal. You're going to have a body in heaven. It's your body. It's going to be changed, but it's still going to be your body. The body never dies. And so that's why Paul begins here, because it's radically countercultural of the age in which he lived when the body didn't matter. That's why there's so much talk in the New Testament about resurrection. Why is there so much talk about our resurrection from the dead one day when Christ comes again? Because the body lives. It might die for a season, but it's going to be raised again, and it will live incorruptible in eternity. And so that's why Paul starts here. But it's, it's, it's in the face of what most of those people thought. Paul would get to Athens, and he would be met by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And those Epicureans didn't even think that any part of you was going to live forever. They were humanists to the core. And so their mantra was minimize pain and maximize pleasure because this is all we've got. And when you die, that's it. The lights go out and it's all over. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And there are people by the millions one way or the other that take one of those two philosophies and that's the way they live. By the tens of millions in this world today. Go around once, grab all the gusto you can, buy all you can, enjoy all you can, because you only go around once in life. And we don't want you to fall into that trap because that will mean you will have wasted your life and that will come with eternal consequences. Many still fall into that trap today. You know why even believers sometimes can fall into that trap? They're not careful. Because I know a lot of people, and you do too, and you know what they want. They want Christianity, but they don't want the cost. Christianity without the cost. And so they do with their bodies. They claim Christ. They may attend church every so often. They may keep a Bible on a shelf somewhere. 
but they do with their bodies, with their lives, exactly what they want to do. They buy into the lie that life is about feeding your appetites. And so we overeat and we overindulge and we overspend and we oversex. Why? Because in our minds, we've convinced ourselves that it's my body. And I can do with it whatever I want to do. And sometimes we may contribute to that because of the language that we employ, because most of the time when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about surrender, what do we tend to talk about? We surrender our what? Surrender your heart to Christ. Okay, well, I can surrender my heart to Christ. Well, the problem is you don't understand what we mean when we talk about the heart. We're not talking about this ticker in here that's pumping blood throughout your body. The heart is a metaphor for the whole person, including the body. See, we don't often tell people, here's the deal, in order to follow Christ, to be a wonderful disciple that brings fruit, that glorifies Christ, you have to sacrifice your body to the Lord. So surrender your body to Christ. You haven't told anybody to do that, and yet you'd be right to do it because it's the whole person. When we talk about yielding your life and surrendering your life and being a living sacrifice, it's the whole person, which includes the body. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 19. <clears throat> Do you not know that your body is a what? Say it out loud. Boom. A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. May we say that out loud together. Ready? Together. You are not, say it again, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, because you were bought with a price, the therefore refers to that, just a little phrase, therefore, honor God with your body. You know why you offer your body a living sacrifice? Because your body is God's house. That's why. If you claim to know Christ, then his spirit resides within you. The moment you surrender your life to Christ, your body becomes the very house of God, the temple where God lives, and the price that he paid in order to live in the house of your body is off the blessed chart. He shed his blood, died on the cross, and because God has paid that price to dwell in the temple of your body, and because he's made it his dwelling place, he's choosing to live there by his spirit, the command then logically follows, honor God with your body because it's God's house. God's not into dead sacrifices anymore, and we're all thankful for that. Aren't you thankful you didn't have to drag a calf in here to church with you this morning? I'm really thankful I didn't have to deal with a calf this morning. That'd be a messy job. i just get to stand here and Look handsome and preach the gospel. Somebody say amen. <laughs> but God's not ended. Listen, the last sacrifice has been made, and his name is Jesus Christ, whom God offered once for all. Once for all. No sacrifice remains anymore. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So God's not into dead sacrifices anymore. Instead, Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let me just tell you very simply what that means. That means each and every day you make a decision. When you start your day, let's just assume this table right here is an altar. You make a decision to climb upon this altar 
and you lay yourself prostrate before the Lord and you begin every day by saying, okay, God, here's the deal. I am yours. You belong to me. I belong to you. And today I'm offering myself afresh and anew to you. I'm a living sacrifice. And today I want you to use me in ways that honor you. Get me out of the way. May this life not be about me, my selfish desires, my plan, my will, my emotions, my intention. May it be all about you so that my life reflects the majesty and glory of your great name. And see, you don't just do that one time when you get saved and forget about it. That's like repentance. Repentance is a daily discipline. The, the, uh, Luke says in his gospel in that great passage where Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And Luke says, follow me daily. Come after me daily carrying that cross. And so cross-bearing is daily, repentance is daily, and getting on the altar of sacrifice is a daily discipline. So that's what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Continually offer yourself. The gospel is entirely of grace, but I'm telling you, your response to the gospel really is important, and it really does count. And my principal response to the gospel is to offer my body to God, because what I do matters to God. Secondly, Paul would say not only that, but how I think matters to God. Your body matters to God, so you offer it to God. But get this, your mind matters to God, and it's very important that you offer your mind to God. That mind gets on the altar too. And you know why that's so important, Hillcrest family? Because the mind controls the body. Now, I know that there's some involuntary actions that you do that you don't have to think about. You don't have to think uh, to, uh, to blink your eyes. You don't have to think for your stomach to growl when you're hungry. Just keep them quiet this morning for the next few minutes. There's some involuntary, but most of the time, every, when you think about it, every voluntary action is preceded by a thought. That's why your mind has to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's why two commands follow here in verse 2. After commanding us to offer our bodies a living sacrifice, Paul says two more things. Verse 2, do not be what? Conformed to this world, but instead be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed, be transformed. And being transformed and refusing to conform has everything to do with the discipline of your mind. So every believer's got a choice of what they do with their mind. You can either be conformed or transformed. Confirmation is when you let the world, as J.B. Phillips says in his translation, you let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's what confirmation is. Some people do that. They let the world set the agenda for their life. They buy into the world system. That's what Paul means by the world. He's not talking about planet Earth. He's talking about this corrupt world system that's anti-God and under the control of the ruler of the air whose name is Satan, the devil. And it's easy, even sometimes for believing people or professing believers, to let this present evil age under the control of the devil chart the course of their life. And it's easy to do because the world system is a system that's designed to appeal to your basic urges of life. 
so that you make decisions based on what feels good at the moment or based on what you want to do or based on what you think seems to be right, what your gut tells you to do. See, the world system says, here's the deal. You're your own God. You're all that is. The world revolves around you. And so because you're the master of your fate, because you're the captain of your own soul, you just do whatever makes you feel good because there really is no absolute truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be, so you define it, and then you live by it, and that's the drumbeat of the world. And let me just say, people by the tens of millions are walking lockstep in it. But God says that's no way for a believer to think. God says that the life that pleases him does not conform to conventional worldly schemes and ways of thinking. It's a life that's willing to see things through the lenses of the Bible, to see things and respond to life and to respond to events from God's perspective, from God's point of view. That's what the Bible means when it talks about wisdom. Biblical wisdom, you read the Proverbs and it's all over it. Seek wisdom, get wisdom. And when it says that, it's talking about learning to see life and respond to life the way God sees and responds to life from God's perspective. But that kind of, that's unconventional thinking. It's countercultural living. But it's God's will for your life. And it always involves uh, a transformed mind. The word transformed there is a, what we call a Greek transliteration. It's not a translation, it's literally the Greek word metamorphosis. You know what that word means, don't you? You know, it's like what happens when a, when a tadpole is transformed into a toad or when a caterpillar transforms itself into a beautiful butterfly. That process is what we call metamorphosis, and that's the word that's used here. Paul says, be metamorphosed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Really, it's the same word that's used of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 and in other gospels where Jesus went up on the mountain uh, with Peter, James, and John, and something glorious and dazzling happened. We call that what? Jesus was what? Transfigured. Before them, in other words, his whole appearance changed. You know, before he was just a human being, flesh and blood, as they looked at him. But then, man, he was totally different. He was white, he was radiant, he was dazzling, he was glorified. They couldn't hardly look at him. It was a radical metamorphosis that took place right there in front of them. He was transfigured. I started to entitle today's message, The Transfigured Life. Because that's exactly what Paul's talking about. We're to be transfigured with respect to our minds so that we have this metamorphosis of the mind. Our whole outlook, our disposition has changed. And with that changed outlook, that changed worldview, that changed perspective where we see life and we see death and we see relationships and we see everything really from the perspective of the Bible and from the perspective of spiritual wisdom, That changed outlook leads to a changed life. Your responses necessarily change. Unless you're not walking with the Lord. 
almost all of us know people here today that claim to know Christ but whose life doesn't bear any fruit. So they talk a big game oftentimes. Oh, yeah, I know the Lord. And they may come to church once in a blue moon or they may have a Bible sitting on the shelf at home, but they hardly ever read it. And there's no real fruit coming from their life. And yet when you look at how they live and how they talk and how they dialogue out in the world, there's not really a whole lot of reflection of Christ, but they claim to know Christ. Some have called them Christian chameleons. You know what a chameleon is? Chameleon is a reptile. Um, I won't use the word snake, but it's a reptile, a, um, a lizard kind of creature. But what marks a chameleon? The ability to do what? Change what? Change colors, that's right. And why does it change colors? Because it doesn't want to stand out. It might be somebody's food if it stands out, right? Because the cost would be too great, it changes its colors in order to blend into its surroundings because the cost is too high. There are lots of people that live that way. They adapt to their environment and they change their colors because they don't want to stand out because standing out might be uncomfortable. And so they fit in. They rationalize and compromise on what they watch, what they wear, sometimes what they don't wear, amen, where they go, what they do, what they read, what they watch. But the Bible says we got a different thing going on in our mind when we are a living sacrifice connected to Christ. Colossians 3, 2, for example, says, set your minds on things that are what? Above, heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth. The Apostle John in his first letter, 1 John 2 and verse 15 says, do not, I mean, it's just point blank, don't love the world. Don't get too cozy with the world. The world's your home now, but it's not gonna be your home forever. And so don't get too psychologically and emotionally and physically bonded to it because it's passing away. But he who does the will of the Lord abides forever. And so don't love the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, and the idea there is loving the world more than you love the Lord, then the love of the Father is not in him. Now let me just say this morning, the last thing in the world I want to sound like today is a legalist. Pastor Jim is not a legalist. In fact, I'd love for you all to say that out loud with me together today. Together, Pastor Jim is not a legalist. Not at all, but I'm going to tell you something else. It's just as true as that. Neither is Pastor Jim someone that would condone biblically anybody who would claim to know the Lord and use the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as a license to do anything they want with their life. Grace is not a license to sin. Because you don't get to do what you want. You don't get to do whatever you want. We are bonded to Christ. And I am to voluntarily choose to do the will of Christ, what honors and glorifies him. That becomes my top priority. So a disciple submits not only their body to God, we submit our mind to God and we allow the spirit to transform the mind 
in terms of the way it thinks, the way it reacts, and the way it functions, so that it thinks on things that matter to God. What I do matters to God. How I think matters to God. And then finally, what I desire matters to God. And this is where the heart does come into play. Because what Paul is basically doing is kind of moving in reverse here. He starts with the body and then moves to the mind, but then he finishes with the heart. Because, and this is very important, just as the mind controls the body, get this, the heart controls the mind. This is why where your heart has settled, the epicenter of your life, the seat of your emotions, the seat of your longings, the seat of your affection, (coughs) where your heart settles, everything else will follow. Notice the last part of Romans 12 too. That by testing, you may discern (coughs) what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know what's implied in that verse? The most important thing in a person's life is knowing and doing the will of God. That's the most important thing. Knowing God's will and then doing God's will. Jesus said, my will is to do, or my food rather, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Knowing and doing the will of God was the very sustenance of the life of Jesus Christ. Not his way, not his life, not even his own will, but the will of his Father. And that's what a living sacrifice does. Living sacrifice is somebody who lays down his life for God to pick it up and use it his way. And really, this is, it all begins with the heart. Because the only way to live righteously and the only way to think righteously is to know and do the will of God, to sacrifice your will to God's will, which means your best is not your best. You sacrifice your best for God's best. And what that requires, two things on your part and mine, willingness and intentionality. You gotta have a willingness to get on that altar of sacrifice as a living sacrifice to God every day and you have to intentionally do it. I'm not talking about willpower because willpower is self-concocted, self-directed. I mean, willpower is the reason most people's willpower is a, is a, is a, is a mechanism of failure and it's why most New Year's resolutions turn into nothing but lies. Because that isn't God trying to do that stuff. That's you trying to do that stuff, and most of the time it doesn't work. So I'm not talking about willpower, putting your nose to the grindstone. I'm going to do this spiritual stuff. No, 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 no. See, Paul says here, it's actually passive. Be transformed. He doesn't tell you and me to transform ourselves. He says be transformed, which means you just put yourself in a position where the Spirit of God can do a work of transformation in your life because it's the Holy Spirit's job to transform anybody. What your job is, is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That's what you're supposed to do. Your whole mind, your whole will, your whole body, you lay it on the altar of dedication to God. And as you do that, as you offer yourself, as you abide in Christ, as you take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, 
You know what God's going to do? Day by day, he's going to continually transform your life so that you can live in a way that's all about him. And you want to know a great definition of worship? It's that right there. That's, Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. That's what he says right here in Romans 2. This is worship. We talk about worship as if it's all about a building. You think everybody in this building today is worshiping God? I doubt it. You can be in the right building and not worship the Lord. <clears throat> Often as Baptists and others, we've made it about dress. You can't worship unless you dress the right way. <clears throat> Some people don't think I can preach the gospel unless I got a $40 piece of cloth tied in a knot around my neck. It's absolute baloney. That's not what makes for a worshipful sermon. Worshipful preaching, worshipful response to God. It's not about a building. It's not about how we dress. It's not even so much about the songs we sing, though they surely do matter. Or about the classes we take. Real acceptable worship to God is offering your life to him completely, mind, body, and heart, soul, so that God can use you in ways that reflect well on him. That is what Paul calls your spiritual worship. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Based on everything that God has done for us, Paul has taken time to unpack in those first chapters of Romans. Based on the love of God, the kindness of God, who looks at our sin and should judge us, but because of his grace sends his only begotten son to die for us, shedding his blood on the cross, giving us the opportunity to respond to the person and work of Christ with faith, receiving the gift of justification, receiving sanctification, the gift of the Holy Spirit being indwelled by the presence of Christ forever until one day Jesus Christ comes again and when he comes he will liberate us out of this sin-fallen world into a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity where we shall rule and reign with him forever and ever and ever in light of all of that, the only reasonable, logical response is to offer your body and your mind and your heart as a living sacrifice so that you can live in a worshipful way that knows and does the will of God. That, brothers and sisters, is a right response to the gospel. And anything else will result in a wasted life. Don't waste your life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may know and do that which is the perfect will of God. This, brothers and sisters, is God's word. And let all who agree say amen.
and amen. Would you bow your heads?